0: Today's reading is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: So these past several weeks, we've been studying uh, James' letter that he wrote, and he wrote it to the churches in the dispersion, the diaspora. And so this was him sharing his hard-won pastoral wisdom um, with all of the churches, many of the churches scattered across the ancient Mediterranean world. And it's a fitting letter for us to study for many reasons, one of which is we are the church scattered during this time of COVID. And even as we are the church gathered, we're gathered in very different ways than we thought we would be before. So we need pastoral wisdom um, on how it is that we can be a community in this, in this time. And it's also, if I were to say there's kind of any theme of this letter, there's maybe two themes. One is Christian community. The other is Christian maturity. And, and, and you cannot have one without the other because you can't have a deep, a rich, and a lasting Christian community without Christian maturity, maturity which means growing up in Christ, growing up together in Christ as life happens to us. Getting older, that's inevitable, right? Father time is undefeated. We're all going to get older. I'm reminded each and every fall as the leaves change, uh, it fills you with kind of a wistful nostalgia. I don't think it's just memories of our childhood, but it's this natural reminder that someday we're all going to die. And so getting older is inevitable, but getting mature is is not. Becoming more mature is not. James saw his church face many real tests, tests that we couldn't imagine. Persecution, poverty, famine. But he also saw his church face the challenges of of everyday boring stuff. The kind of challenges that happen whenever human beings get together. Personality conflicts, status, anxiety, and envy. Class conflicts, bitter infighting. Christian community, it's so precious, but it's also so precarious because it's filled with people. People. People with their different preferences and temperaments and perspectives and politics and quirks and pet issues and pet peeves and just overall pettiness. Chesterton asked, What's wrong with the world? And his simple two word answer was this I am. And that question and answer can be slightly tweaked and they hold true for the church as well. What's wrong with the church? I am. Every challenge we face, though, every challenge we face is an opportunity to grow up and to have our immaturity revealed. And as an illustration, you know, every challenge we face, it reveals as, as, as a father. I am not a huge fan of this distance learning thing, not one bit. And so there's this big part of me right now as the school year started. I'm just saying, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. This, this is not fair, especially to the kids, my kids, to be sure. And to the kids who we know are going to face, you know, adverse life outcomes and consequences because of our collective failure to have, at least in the Minneapolis public schools, but I know this is true for other districts as well, to provide them some kind of in-person instruction in the fall. That's not fair. It's not their fault. They didn't do anything. It's not fair. And, and it's been a real struggle. And I, and I hear some parents say how their kids are responding really well to in person learning. I even hear people say, you know what, my kid is doing better at home than they were at school. And I think that's not fair, because that's not my situation. And, and, and then I see other people sending their kids to, you know, other, in other districts or in private schools, sending their kids for some kind of in person instruction. And I go, that's not fair that's not fair. And I struggle with my kids to get them to, to log in and to do their work and to make sure that their camera is on and their microphone is off. And, 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 and I sometimes just lose my temper and I think, it's not fair. It's not fair. And okay, all of that and much of that I think is true. It's not fair. But where God has been challenging me to mature is in this question, okay, so it might not be fair, but what are you going to do about it? What's your response going to be? Am I just going to sulk around? Am I going to just be angry at the world, angry at my kids, angry at uh, Ed Graff, the superintendent of Minneapolis Public Schools? And so I've been forced to face, especially my immaturity as a father, as I get angry and frustrated with my kids and this distance education, saying, saying, I've got to do a better job because God has given me this job, this responsibility, and no one else. And so what am I going to do with it? And so we're faced with a challenge. We're faced with a challenge in life. Our immaturity gets revealed by that challenge. And we can either, you know, revel in it, stew in it, baste in it. Or we can ask God to use it to help grow us in grace. We can humble ourselves and do that. And so the challenge that James is addressing in our passage this morning, it's conflict in the Christian community, which he refers to as a war in the church. He says there's a war going on. And so I want us to look this morning at issues related to war. What causes this war? And then how can we be peacemakers? Or what will bring about peace that will end the conflict? And bring not just the end to the conflict, but real flourishing in Christian community. And so first, what are the causes of war in the church that James looked at? And quite honestly, as Matt read this, you know, maybe you weren't putting all of the pieces of this passage together. It's one of the more difficult ones in James to. Interpret, but but James he begins by asking this question. He says, "What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you?" So he's going to look at the root causes. What are the causes of these quarrels, these fights, these conflicts in the church? But actually, that's not even as strong of the languages. In in the Greek, a more literal translation would be, "What causes wars and what causes battles among you?" You know, these aren't just kind of petty little squabbles. No, 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 no. People are going at it with one another. Wars, battles. This is hardcore conflict. And his answer that he comes to, so what causes this? What's causing this war in the church? And he says this, he says, is it not this, that your passions, that's a key word there, your passions are at war within you. Now that word passion can be a good thing. I love people where they're so passionate. They pursue something so passionately. But but where that word passion comes from in Greek, it's actually the root word of our English uh, word hedonism your passions, your hedonism, right? It's, 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 it's your pursuit of pleasure for yourself, your self-interested pursuit of pleasure. That's what he's talking about here. That's the key word that we can pick up on that is causing these wars in the church. And so he says that is it not that your pursuit of your own preferences and pleasure are causing these things? And so that's what, what's causing all these wars and conflicts in the Christian community. It's, it's the outworking of this hedonic principle, the pleasure principle in the church. And so the, pres- the pleasure principle, the self-interested pursuit of one's own interest at the expense of others, that's what James means when he talks about friendship with the world. He's talking about kind of living by the default settings of the world, just, you know, living how everyone else lives, the default settings, the default values, which are our life without any consideration of God. And he says, that's enmity, that's hatred of God. And the world does, I think it does operate according to the pleasure principle. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel good. Do what satisfies yourself. And this pleasure principle, though, it conflicts with the principle that is at the heart of the Christian faith. And so let me explain this here. And and on this point here, and this next thing I refer to, and a little later, another offer I refer to, I'm indebted here to uh, Timothy Keller for introducing me to the work of these authors and then explaining them as well. And so the first, the first uh, explication of how this pleasure principle conflicts with what's at the heart of Christianity comes from a, a Catholic author named Thomas Howard. And he wrote a book called Splendor of the Ordinary, in which he outlined two competing principles for life. And the first is the pleasure principle, which says, my life for me living as if the world exists for me. And so my chief goal and purpose is to make sure my needs are met and I get what I want. And this is contrasted with the, the Christian principle of sacrifice, which says, my life for thee. I give up my life for you. I put my needs, preferences, and wants and desires behind others. So the pleasure principle friendship with the world says, my life for me, The Christian principle, friendship with God says, my life for thee. And so when people are living according to the pleasure principle, my life for me, you can see how this is going to wreak all kinds of havoc in the church and cause all sorts of conflict. Because that's what happens when people are just out to get theirs, right? To make sure that that their preferences are enacted in the community. So you say my life for me, and you end up using people. And when things get tough, you end up bailing. And when all your needs aren't being met, or your preferences aren't being catered to, you go somewhere else. And you end up putting your own preferences before the mission of the church. And, and, and this played itself out classically, I think of the 1980s and 1990s, when there was the worship wars. They were referred to as the worship wars in the church between traditional worship and contemporary worship. And you had generations fighting each other. And a lot of it had to do with this pleasure principle at play, which was, is my preferred style and genre of music being played? Or is it not? And it had very little to do with the mission of the church. But the, the, the my life for thee principle, it, it's behind everything, everything that makes life worth living. Good parenting is all about this. My life for thee. I'm here. I'm standing here because my parents, I think about how much they gave up in their lives for me. You know, my mother giving up her body for, for nine months and then feeding me for a year. And then volunteering at my elementary school when I'm young. And my dad coaching my soccer and my basketball teams. And I got to tell you, my seventh grade basketball team, traveling basketball team, was one of the biggest group of like little pills. That's a polite way of saying it. We were just very difficult children. And our parents, some of the parents and adults who were surrounding that team were actually worse. And, uh, and, 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 and this traveling basketball team, Southwest, seventh grade, traveling basketball, had tried to hire a coach. And the coach ghosted. He did the classic, like, oh yeah, I'll agree to do it. And then he ghosted, wouldn't return phone calls. Who knows why this person ghosted? And so then the question goes, who's going to coach this team? And so my dad stepped up. And uh, Ken Parsons was the assistant coach as well. And it was the most thankless and miserable job I can imagine. My gosh, I can't believe my dad did this. But it was his life for me. Oh, and I think about all of the years, the prayers, the worries, the fights, the car rides, the games, and the money they gave up just to raise me. It's astounding. But all of this, all of this, because they said, my life for thee. Hoping that I'd grow up into someone who would be a my life for thee and not a my life for me person too. And the default setting of childhood, I think, is my life for me. And so part of growing up is going from a kid that is a my life for me person, which makes sense, to a my life for thee person. But every time that you say yes to someone else, to helping them, answering that phone call, sending that text, helping them move, bringing them a meal, having that conversation when you might be ready to leave, joining that group, saying yes to showing up to serve, you're, you're saying in essence to the community, to them, my life for thee. And I believe that at the heart of the Christian community, it's a mutual sacrifice of time it's the mutual sacrifice of, of relationship. It's, it's the mutual sacrifice of, of, of talent and giftedness. It's the mutual sacrifice of treasure and resources. It's a bunch of people saying, my life for thee and getting together. So war in the church, and, 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 and it's the classic kind of John Kennedy, you know, moment in his inaugural address where he said, you know, ask not. What your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, my life for thee, or my life for me says, well, what am I getting out of the church? But my life for thee posture says, what can I pour into it? And so we see James is saying that war in the church, it's caused by the pleasure principle in action. But what causes people to pursue the pleasure principle in the first place? Why do they live that way? And so St. Augustine would say, and James would agree with him, that the most basic sin of all that causes this is pride. It's pride. And James writes that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So it's spiritual pride, really, versus spiritual humility. Humility. And here again, I'm indebted to to Timothy Keller for explicating this book uh, by Jonathan Edwards called Thoughts on Revival, where, where Edwards spells out kind of the marks of spiritual pride and the marks of spiritual humility. And Edwards was famous as one of the central figures of the first Great Awakening in colonial America. And one of the things that he blamed for squelching the fires of revival in his Northampton congregation, uh, which he had a very tumultuous relationship with, was that there was just infighting in the church and in the community, and it squelched the fires of revival. And he thought, what caused this infighting? Why did my people, when God was doing a great work, why did they all of a sudden do this thing that, that squelched the fires of revival. And so he came up with these six marks of spiritual pride, which were contrasted with these six marks of spiritual humility. Because if the problem behind the pleasure principle is pride, then the solution is humility. And I think the, that all of these faults really stem from the first one. And the first mark of spiritual pride is this. You're more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. It's the old thing that Jesus said about seeing the speck. In your neighbor's eye and not noticing the log in your own. And how much of spiritualist pride stems from the fact that we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt in almost everything, and we don't extend that same grace to others. Your faults are your faults. They're, they're, they're a quirk. They're an aberration from who you really are. But others' faults, that is who they are. And so, so much of our spiritual pride stems from that very first move. And, 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 and a mark, the first mark of spiritual humility then, of the course, is the converse. You're more aware of your own faults than you are of the faults of others. The second mark of spiritual prize, pride is that your awareness of others' faults causes you to disdain them. So you see other people's faults, and when you see those faults in them, you disdain them because of those. But the second mark of spiritual humility is that when you speak of the faults of others, it doesn't fill you with schadenfreude or contempt but grief. Third mark of spiritual pride you separate from or you're cold toward the people whom you've criticized or who've criticized you. But humility means that you stick it out through difficult patches and difficult relationships. Fourth mark of a spiritually proud person is they're dogmatic about everything. You know, they, they aren't able to separate the major from the minor because to them, everything is a major point, they can't countenance disagreement. But a spiritually humble person holds open that they might be wrong and that there can be mutual understanding, even if there isn't mutual agreement. They're open-minded in that sense. They're not dogmatic in that sense. The fifth mark, Edward says, of a, of a spiritually proud person is that, that people are spiritually proud. They either love confrontation because they like winning and they like imposing themselves on others, or they avoid confrontation at all costs because they can't, avo- they can't uh, countenance being contradicted. But the spiritually humble engage in confrontation only when necessary and always with discretion. And the sixth mark of, of spiritually proud people is that they're unhappy always because they feel sorry for themselves, because life isn't fair and they deserve better than they're getting. And humble people are always happy because they understand that they deserve nothing. And so everything they do have is itself a grace. It's sheer grace. And as James says in verse six, he gives, God gives more grace. And so I think those six marks, that's a, kind of a good way to take an inventory of your life and your heart and say, how are you doing? Are you more spiritually proud or are you more spiritually humble? Or, or, or what are those circumstances or the people that caused you to be spiritually proud versus spiritual, spiritually humble. So we have the causes of war. We have a hint at humility towards peace. But I just want to point out two things very briefly before I close. In verses 7 and 8. Two great promises and encouragements that we have for being peacemakers. The first is this. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So great encouragement here is that the devil is a Coward. When you resist him, he will flee from you. And so spiritual humility, it's not rooted in passivity at all. Peacemaking is not passive. They're active. So actively resist the devil. Resist the temptation to pride. Resist friendship with the world and the pre- pleasure principle. Resist, and guess what? The devil is a coward. He will run away from you. So that's the kind of the first promise and principle of spiritual humility that we see. And the second is this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, James says. God isn't far off from us. He hasn't left us. He's right there. And, 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 and we take a, when we take a step towards him, we find that he's already right there embracing us. And the ultimate proof of that is what, 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 that, that, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who said in the ultimate and final and perfect way, my life for thee all the way. He gave it all. He's the one who humbled himself in order that we might be exalted. And so in the end, when it comes to war in the church, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I'll say it again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.